person who wants to help, a person who wants to help people reach their potential, a person who wants to reach their own potential and then do the same for others. G'day, it's Phil here. It's been terrific in the previous two episodes of this special series of the Game Changers Series 8 to get to know John Yo, a thoroughly interesting, insightful and deeply impactful human being who's doing wonderful things out there. I can't wait to see where we're up to with his story and how we take this forward into his future. I'm excited. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our special series sponsor? Sure thing, Adriano. EDAPT provides educators with an easier, more meaningful way to check in with each student and know them on a deeper level. Find out more at edapt.education forward slash game changers. That's edapt.education forward slash game changers. Let's go. G'day, John. Thanks very much for joining me again. Shall we, shall we jump straight in? We've got to sort of the point where you worked out in your life, I guess, your formula or your model around message and helping people to think about who they are and how they want to convey their sense of purpose in how they talk about how they communicate, how they try and put ideas across, how they try and convince people. I want to start, if I can, with this notion of convincing people and the evil world of marketing and commerce and filthy lucre. Because in the world of education, there are many, many good folk who go into it with really, really uh, noble intentions, who perceive that there is an impenetrable uh, wall between what good people do and the world of commerce. And here you are teaching us all about how to persuade people and how to do that. Why, why is it a good idea to persuade people of things? I think we have a moral responsibility to know ourselves and to leave the world a better place. That's kind of something sort of in my DNA, so to speak. Everyone has suffered, some people more than others. And what brings me most joy is seeing the ease of that suffering. If it's light tension to, you know, happy contentments, that's great. But, you know, deep, profound suffering and significant change because it's just wrong. I think needs to be the responsibility of everyone. And so sustainability is a classic example of that. And that is conflicted against really all the uh, activities that humans have created on this planet, for better or worse, to create this conflict with our own existence, our own planet. So sustainability has always been a big part of what I've done. And I mentioned my dad in my previous conversation around the banana leaf. There were certain things that kind of become obvious. Evil marketing, that's an interesting perspective. I think, it's a, I think it is a perspective. I think we can blame capitalism, not specifically marketing. Marketing just drives that. And I, I also must sort of add to that that people do not confuse capitalism with democracy because I think they're quite different things. Capitalism can exist outside of democracy. And it's capitalism, I think, and the pure drive for capitalism that potentially drives all the conflict with environment and people and social justice. Uh, in, in exploitative ways. And like any model, models uh, have a positive and a negative side. And unfortunately, the negative side of uh, capitalism is environmental damage and, and, and in some cases, social justice. So I felt that if I am on the TED stage where I have the recognition and platform to shift someone's perception, then why not? And so I tell my team, we're not an events company, we're an experienced design company. 
And the primary objective is not to create events, it's to change the way people think and feel about the world they live in. And that comes to your point, what is influence? It is that, it's to change the way people think and feel about the world they live in. So that we can ideally be unified in that bigger picture. And that is again, a context, a point of view, a perspective, a context. Politicians will not make many decisions beyond their remit of their time in office. You have that conflict versus something that might be 10, 20, 30 years in advance to fix, i.e. the environment. And it's about reconciling that too. And then therefore the conversation is what are the, the midpoint? Influence is our ability to shift that noodle in our own small way. And that might be small, it might be significant. You know, you might be a Greta Thunberg type character, in which case you want to go and shake the earth or Steve Jobs and make a ding in the universe. Or it might be just choose to recycle a bit more and maybe consume a little bit less, I don't know, plastic and energy. Whatever that time point is, we all have a natural point where we're comfortable with something being as it is. And so my, what excites me most is helping people realise, helping them people have that light that suddenly realise that they actually do have the power to make that change. And they do have the power, whether it's in themselves or the environment they live in. And that influence is one of the ways to do it. Now, if we lost the ability to uh, read and write, that's limiting. And yet at school, that's all we're taught to do, read and write. We're not taught to speak at school. We lose our ability to speak. Suddenly all agency of power is gone. If we lose our ability to influence, our ability to shift the world in any small way is gone. And so I would argue that speaking and influence are synonymous and our ability to master it is a responsibility. And so whether you choose to direct that towards good causes like social justice or negative causes like world domination is then a moral decision. I want to pick up so much of what you're talking about here, John, because it's, so, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I want to take you to a really banal example because you're talking about changing the world and you're talking about persuasion on great or small levels on issues to do with fundamental sustainability. You're also talking about the downside of capitalism. I want to talk about the upside of capitalism here for a moment. I want to talk about, do you think if you've got a better way to make pizza, which is a little bit cheaper than other ones, do you think you have a moral responsibility to tell people about it? I think that if you create great pizza and that brings great joy to all the people around you, then it must be pursued to the point where it starts impinging on the rights of others. So there is a great statement, I think it's a thick brooch I read, it says, getting what you want without violating the rights of others. And I, I think that is the line. Okay, okay. Because what we see in the world at the moment is a conflict, I think, between competing knowledge systems around the exchange of value really, don't we? And, and on one side, we've got a small number of very loud people who are essentially pursue unrestrained liberty for self-interest, essentially. Yeah. You know? and, and then on the other side, we've got folk who are essentially saying, stop what you're doing, stop all of it, it's evil. Um, mm -hmm. I think both sides are completely and utterly wrong in their approach. And I think both sides, the methodologies that they use to put about their arguments and to dominate the airspace are, are highly highly dangerous for our world. I believe that one of the great advances of the last three, 400 years is reason. The whole scientific revolution, which was based on, on reason, on, on balance and perspective, and balance and perspective in the middle 
assumes that there's a gray space in which there's a marketplace for ideas and those ideas have to compete against each other because as soon as we don't have competition, we don't have humanity. Because you know, human beings, they are competitive with each other. You know, that's yeah. we we do argue. We do we you know with, without competition, well, there's there's no curiosity. There's no better, etc., etc., etc. How do we help people to achieve balance, to manage complexity, to see both sides of an issue, rather than just turn around and go, capitalism bad, or greenies terrible. You know, is which is just yeah. cartoon land. But, but actually seems to be dominating way too much in our public in our public discourse currently. Yeah, I think absolutes are important, but not always effective. And so I enjoy extremes purely because it redefines what the middle midpoint is. But that midpoint, I guess you call it balance, is not necessarily optimal. It's just the middle. And so I prefer the word harmony over balance. Because balance implies a binary between two opposing ideas. And in nature, for instance, everything is always in harmony, but it's never in balance. That's and, interesting. That's interesting. And, and so I think we need to aim for harmony where we're including all the stakeholders. This is where stakeholder capitalism is actually quite interesting to me. That is a capitalism I could stomach. Whereas pure capitalism, where it's the exclusive role is to maximise profit, causes all sorts of problems, which is what legally people are obliged to do now. They're obliged to maximise profit. Yeah, although I think it comes back to the, I mean, Keith Jenkins, the great postmodern historian, he say that the big question is, could we bono for whose benefit? Well, that's the uh, capitalism again. Yeah, yeah. And well... And there are different models that are proposed this way and that way and the other way. I think the, the idea of harmony, I think, is interesting, although I think harmony also present, prevents friction. Um, and being a Hegelian historian, I, I'm a very great believer in thesis, antithesis and synthesis. And I don't think you get anywhere without conflict. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you get new ideas. I'm not know, suggesting harmony doesn't make The lion still eats the antelope. Oh, yeah. Harmony. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm interested in the idea of things that fit together. People who are close to me know that I love the notion of when a plan works. But then, you know, there's a the downside to that too, which is intentionality triumphs. And I think you should be intentional. I think you should be purposeful. I think life is lived better when, it's, when you're purposeful around what you do. But if you're too busy swimming up and down the black line, you forget to look outside the pool every now and then, and, 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 and that's the thing that will change the game. So there's... You know, there's serendipity is, is, is as important to me as an intention and a plan. So what's the future for TEDx? What's the future for a world where people speak well, where there is increasingly polarised debate and segmentation of audiences? Does TEDx just become an echo chamber of people who think the same way? How do we bring ideas together? I think any platform is always in danger of becoming an echo chamber. And it's one of the reasons why... For Tech Melbourne specifically, we're looking outside of our own community to even select the talks. Like I'm the one curator, but I have other people I call on all the time to ask what else is out there. I'm also researching constantly. I'm subscribed to extraordinary amounts of podcasts or RSS feeds or you know, YouTube subscriptions to make sure that I'm getting that diversity. And I even subscribe to the extreme ones in an order to understand why they think that way in the first place. So if you looked at my little thing, my little sort of subscription feed, you'd probably wonder what the hell am I 
doing <laughs> all over the shop. It's not down one path because I have to go look at those extremes in order to find that middle. Sure. So, that's but then that's that's been the pattern of your life, hasn't it? Yeah. That curiosity, that wondering if that that looking around that that gradual assembly of data, which can then, you know, give substance to the instinct that you've felt around something something. I mean, there's there's a lovely mix in mixture of, of, of being deductive and induction all happening at the same time of this sort of swirling circle. Why do we need this sort of space to be created in our world today? And what's it got to do with education? I think humanity is in the best position it's ever been in history to know everything and to under, understand everything to the extent that we don't live in our own little bubbles that we can actually go look for it, we can research, we can be objective, we can understand it if we choose to. And if that's not an impetus to learn more, be more, grow more, understand more, it's understanding that creates peace. So then what's this got to do with education? How can we tie the world of school into this type of, this type of ontology, I think, is really what you're talking about here? From an education point of view, there's often endpoints. You know it or you don't. You pass or you don't. You have the information or you don't. And I think what would be really helpful if we educate ourselves, Ijuko, to draw out, to understand, is to understand the principles and nature by which things happen and use those first principles and apply that with our education, our knowledge, to make an informed first principle decision about the best way to move forward. I think if you come back to first principles, you come back to human scale. And what is that scale? What is the scale of humanity? What is the measure of humanity? I said, it's great having a conversation with you because I could just ask all these ridiculous <laughs> questions and you'll have a real crack at answering them too. It's terrific. I think a really amazing template is the values and understandings of all First Nations, where they literally survive for tens of thousands of years in harmony with nature in a way that was complementary to their existence, their knowledge and their experience, but still supplemented their desire to learn and grow and also sustain them from a biological point of view. And I think we have now have an over-reliance on absolute science and absolute capitalism as the only source of knowledge to the way forward. And I think a lot of, in many respects, and this is the irony part, a lot of times science and knowledge is actually confirming some of this First Nation value sets in the, first, in the, in the beginning. So we have this beautiful circle. And I think it's the education, to answer your question, is closing that circle, that gap between pure science and pure capitalism and generational wisdom. And how might we do that in an educational context? I think we need to open our eyes, hearts and minds to the Indigenous and First Nation knowledge and value set. I think we need to be more accepting and integral to what they know and believe. Because a lot of times people go, oh, well, why don't they comply to Western values? And they could make the same, exact same argument. Why doesn't the rest of the world comply to the Indigenous and First Nations values? It's worked for tens of thousands of years. What's wrong with it? And I think they both have a case. And it's, again, this is the whole compromise thing, the olive leaf thing where we sit in our very first conversation. What is the olive leaf we need to have? Olive branch, sorry. What is the olive branch we need to have 
to rediscover the values on both sides of the fence. And then we talked about a dance, didn't we? So maybe the discourse that you're promoting is the dance where we learn to fit in with each other rather than stand on opposite sides of the room and scowl and, so it, and wonder. The, I can't remember who said it, but there was someone who said that the, the, um, the sign of intelligence is the ability to hold two conflicting ideas in their head simultaneously. And that's very much what the TED community does. They often have very vigorous conversations on points of view, but equally accept that the other person's point of view is valid and are willing to have deep dialogue and consideration for what that new direction might be. That's a very, but that's a very dispassionate aesthetic. You know, that's, that's, that, that takes us back to stoicism. That takes us back to that notion of standing back from an idea to see its relative merits and not getting too attached to this, yeah. that. Now, we don't live in that world now. We live in a world which privileges emotion and feeling. We live in a world where, we, you know, it's not I think, therefore I am. It's I feel, therefore it is. Yeah. And there's no, there's no filter. There's no... Um, pause around any of this. We spend more time absorbing, less time reflecting, and all of the technology which is influencing us most strongly is designed to do all of this sort of stuff as opposed to help us to build the tools that we need to reflect on the sorts of things that you're doing. Because, you know, when you're sitting there and you're talking about First Nations and absolute capitalism and absolute this and that and the other, you know, placing in the context of what you're saying there, you're not setting up binaries in opposite to each other, but you're saying, well, there, there are these extremes that sit over here. By exploring those, we might find the space that we can inhabit in between and seek the harmony um, yeah. that might hold all of that together reasonably well. Um, so, 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 so what do we do about that? Well, we are biologically primed to be reactive because that's what, I'm going to come back to capitalism. If you come back to what's called, uh, oh, what were they called? Not experienced designers. There are billion-dollar departments in companies like Facebook and, and Google and whatnot. And they have their origins going back to the casinos in Vegas when they first opened. What causes someone to stay? Now, Google and Facebook have a goal to keep you there for, I think it's an extra 0.25 of a second. And they have billion dollar departments designed to tweak our emotional state to cause us to interact that little bit more, to go for that dopamine hit. And we need bigger and bigger dopamine hits in order to get a reaction, which is why sensationalism now is so extreme compared to say 30 years ago. We are primed that way. So we need to then de-escalate the sensitivity is the first thing. To answer your question, are we emotional human beings? Yes, absolutely. We, 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 we feel and, and respond emotionally, but we need to act intellectually. And we need to decide which one would we do first. And I would argue as humans, we probably need to do emotional first then intellectually second. But you can't do that if you don't have mastery of yourself. It takes us right back to the beginning of our conversation, which is all about the formation of character and the, the development of the self and, and relationship and, and service and vocation. Um, yeah. You know, the, the four questions we ask, who am I, where do I fit in, how can I best serve others, whose am I? But then also that, that, that whole, that three layers of character development of, of around belonging, the achievement of potential and the doing of good and right and trying to unpick them too much doesn't actually get us where we 
need to get to. We need to work out how it all works in relation to the other. This is one of the most interesting conversations of my life. I'm so privileged to have had the time to spend um, with you, John. What's, what's next for you? What, where, where are you going to next? What do you, what do you, what do you want to do? Well, uh, I, 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 effectively, I want to give the world a voice. I want everyone to feel like they are accepted, that they can speak their mind, that someone will consider what they do, that someone will take them seriously, and that, that, that every individual has the right and privilege to express themselves as they are, because that's then ultimate acceptance and belonging. Such a laudable ambition. It, it's funny, isn't it? So when I look at what we're trying to do at a school for tomorrow and, and the Game Changers podcast, a lot of it seems to be about particular ideas. But for us, it's actually, I think, about building a network in which ideas about education and about today's learning for tomorrow's world can be built. Um, and, you know, even in this conversation where, you know, I've teased out of you a whole lot of ideas about your, your personal ideas about you know, sustainability in the world and, and, and what good and right is at the end of the day, your purpose is about giving people a voice, which is about a process of facilitation. And, and, and that's the service around that that you offer. Um, thank you. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate your time. I know our Game Changer um, audience will really, really appreciate um, the opportunity to have had three bites of the amazing mind um, that you have. Thank you. No worries at all. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for helping me explore that with myself because I think even some clarity there came to me when you asked those great questions. John Yo, thank you very much. No worries at all. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.